Kia I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail... A body has been recovered in the search for a student missing in Abbey Caves near Whangarei. His outdoor education group became trapped in the Abbey Caves. 14 others and two adults got out. They were just saying that the group of friends were trapped in the cave. The water had come up really fast and that, um, that they needed help immediately. There's an alert, um, weather alert, and here's a school taking these children into these caves while this is going on. The death of a student at Abbey Caves in Whangarei brings back memories of one of New Zealand's worst outdoor recreation tragedies. Six Elam Christian College students and their teacher died while canyoning at the Sir Edmund Hillary Outdoor Pursuit Centre in April 2008. So, 15 years on, why are fatal mistakes still being made? It felt like the whole ground shifted under our feet after Mangarapopo and we needed to have far stronger safety procedures in place. We look at what happened at Mangate Popo in 2008, the toughest safety rules that came out of it, and why schools aren't subject to them. The Ministry of Education says no qualification is needed to lead most outdoor activities, with the exception of rafting. It says incompetent leaders and ineffective supervision are major contributing factors when things go badly wrong. Well, Neil Silverwood is a professional caver and guide, and he also does safety audits on outdoor recreation and adventure companies. Uh, when I heard about the Mangatapapo tragedy, I was in the third year of a degree in outdoor education. I previously worked as an outdoor instructor at the Outdoor Pursuit Centre, and then I'd, I'd returned to uh, finish my degree and. We, when I say we, uh, myself and the other tutors and the other students were just in a, in a state of shock. We uh, thought the outdoor sector had reached a point where accidents like that would no longer occur, um, and especially not for, for such a major outdoor centre as uh, Hillary Outdoor Pursuit Centre, um, now known as Hillary Outdoors. So absolutely shocked when we heard the news of the tragedy. You actually had a connection with the centre. You had worked there. Yeah, I'd, I'd worked at the centre um, for, for one year full-time and then on and off as a contractor. And I had um, studied uh, at Type 10 Polytechnic in um, 1995 and, um, and been on the Cave Creek platform the day before it failed. On the 28th of April 1995, a Department of Conservation viewing platform collapsed and fell 30 metres into a ravine near Punakaiki on the west coast, killing 13 students from Taiputini Polytechnic and one dock worker. So I lost a lot of classmates through that accident, and so it really brought those memories back up again. Mangata Popo, what actually happened there? A group from Elam College were doing a five-day course, a standard course, and on the day of the, of the tragedy, there was um, rain in the forecast and easing off late afternoon. Uh, no heavy rain warnings per se. And three groups had decided they were going to do part of the canyoning trip. And this, this is a, a really dramatic canyon. It's 100 metres deep, 4 to 5 metres wide, small river flowing through it. And rather than going downstream to decrease the risk, they decided to go up the canyon, just do a shorter version and, and then turn around. So two of the groups walked into the canyon uh, and then changed their mind just because the, the rain at that point had become so intense. They decided it wasn't safe 
and a new young instructor uh, decided to give it a crack. And my understanding is as she entered the, the canyon, the water was had, had risen a little bit and turned around and started coming back down the canyon. And at that point, it's starting to flood quite quickly. And perhaps my thoughts are if she continued at that point, when it wasn't still too high, she would have got out, but made the decision to stop on a ledge, um, put all the students in a safe spot and try and get them warm. The water continued to rise um, until it was basically up to the, to the students' feet uh, and or even higher, and then made the decision to to swim swim them out. So um, clip the strong students to the weak students. They actually tie them together so the strong student could help the weak student. She swam down first with a throw bag, and then the students came down one by one or, or two by two per se, and where she was located was just upstream of a of a of a dam. Um, I can't remember its height, maybe eight meters. And she was successful in throw bagging some of the students, but the majority went over um, over that dam and then um, dra- uh, mostly drowned as a result. So there were seven seven deaths. The father of one of the students killed in the Mangatipopo canyoning tragedy says he's shocked by the litany of errors and incompetence which have been revealed at the inquest into the deaths. So inexperience was, was a big factor, guide inexperience. Yep, workplace culture as well. So OPC had a really high staff turnover. Like generally speaking, it takes it takes a year or so at least to really find your feet as an outdoor instructor. And at that point, um, people were were staying at, at OPC for six months, max of a year, and they just weren't getting the skills up that they needed. So there's a really high staff turnover, um, inexperience, and perhaps a little bit of um, hubris. Evidence was presented that the children should never have been in the gorge that day and those who could have stopped them didn't. The centre was said to be plagued by poor communication and a lack of support for junior staff. OPC, in having worked there at that time, was working on a model that relied on experience. So one of the other instructors that turned around that day was highly experienced and they didn't really have strong systems in place per se and experienced instructors that would rely on the judgment of the individual instructor. And now they've gone towards a model which um, relies greatly on, on rigid standards. So they have a, a traffic light system in place uh, the last time I worked there, which is um, green, orange and red, uh, depending on the different weather forecasts in the day. And so far stronger safety standards in place than, than they would, would have had. Because weather was a huge thing, the weather, it was atrocious. Yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, I do remember OPC at the time after the tragedy highlighting the fact that, that in their view this was sort of a freak occurrence or a freak flood, and I didn't feel that was the case. Like the Mangatapopo um, flooded reasonably regularly, and, and this was just one of those those flows. Um, there just happened to be a group in there on that day, but I don't think it was a, a, a freak accident, per se. And what changed after that, Neil? I mean, so you, you're saying that you were you were studying at the time, you were doing a degree, and you went on to become a guide. You're now, you're now a real specialist in the outdoors, and you're a caver yourself. After that accident... Did things change in terms of the rules and even what you were being taught? I, th- I think the industry changed greatly, as you'd expect, because that's the worst tragedy in, in the history of outdoor recreation in New Zealand. All of the previous tragedies, um, Cave Creek aside, um, that I can think of, there's only ever been one single death. And the industry has regulated greatly, so all companies now need to have a safety audit. Some of the operators out there 
certainly at that time we we're cowboys and I, th- I think that's mostly gone from the from the industry and i get the impression the strong impression there's far less incidents and accidents in the outdoors because of it we've, we've come a long way it, these are the safety operating procedures yeah that's correct yeah safety operating procedures are much stronger and we have auditing processes in place where, where all outdoor companies operating in moderate to high risk environments um, will need to have a safety audit so a safety auditor will come through and look at how the company is operating, looking if they're meeting their safety operating requirements. They have the ability to shut that, that whole program down if need be, which which is also is really expensive. So some of the smaller players perhaps have had to leave the industry, but it has made it far safer. We were going to explore this with John O'Maxwell, the manager for Hillary Outdoors in Tongarero, previously the Outdoor Pursuit Centre, but he was told by the board not to speak to us. In the years since the Mangatepopo tragedy, commercial operators have had to work under much stricter safety rules, the Adventure Activities Regulations. For schools, it's different. There was a review into school guidelines on outdoor education after Mangatepopo, but the onus is still on schools and their boards to be responsible for student safety. Like all schools, Whangarei Boys High School has an outdoor health and safety policy and you can read it on its website. WorkSafe helps develop the National Caving Safety Guidelines which state instructors should know how and when to cancel a trip. This includes knowing weather forecasts, the maximum safe water level and waiting areas, escape routes and how to get out if the water rises. And it is expected this will all be part of WorkSafe's investigation. A former WorkSafe investigator has told RNZ the current inquiry will be looking at the Whangarei School's decision to go into the caves despite the bad weather. Who made the call and what reassurances they had that the students would be safe. They'll be scrutinising everything that led up to that decision and will likely take a guide into the caves to look at the risks. So what is it like to be a guide for a group of young people? Here's Neil again. When you're working as an outdoor instructor, you have like apprentice, um, so, so those students are, are solely your responsibility. And I think the parents' uh, perception is this, the, their, their child will be put in, in an environment where there's probably going to be a high perceived risk but a low actual risk. And so a high perceived risk would be, say, if you're out rock climbing, um, you're attached to a rope, carabiners and harness, all the equipment has been checked. When you climb up there, it's absolutely terrifying, but the actual real risk is quite low. I think when we have loco printers, we have a huge responsibility and we have to ensure that we are keeping those children safe um, and giving them a, an experience where there's, there's a moderate to high perceived risk, but an actual Uh, low risk in reality. Do you feel that these sorts of activities are taken seriously enough in New Zealand, say compared with other countries? That's a real habit. Um, I think um, New Zealand's unique in in that we have ACC and we don't have a culture where you can sue. So that's allowed the commercial adventure tourism industry and outdoor recreation to thrive. Uh, it hasn't been able to do so in many other countries in the world due to the risk of um, of suing, really. Mm. Uh, and I think, yeah, so we are able to offer um, far more um, adventurous experiences than others are. And, and, of course, we don't want to stop 
these kinds of activities because they're amazing and and they're you know part of growing up in New Zealand aren't they but I do wonder what happens I mean do, do you lose does the industry lose a bit of confidence when there is a big tragedy yeah I think it's a really good question it felt like the whole ground shifted under our feet after Mangadapopo and we needed to have far stronger safety procedures in place. But I think now, if we're still seeing accidents, we, we may need stronger regulation in place. Uh, we, we need to ensure this doesn't happen. We need to ensure that the, the perceived risk is, is moderate to high and the actual risk is really low. Um, as an example, so cave systems act as natural drains. Um, so if it rains on the surface, all of that water flows through a really confined gap um, they can flood really quickly, and we should we should make sure we have at the very minimum a uh, flow gauge at the bottom of the cave entrance or or the outlet, and we have a uh, a system where we don't we don't enter those places if it's raining per se. So we we may need stronger regulation. Just to be clear, what you are saying is, if it's raining, the cave should be closed, just out of bounds, full stop. No, not necessarily. So, so many caves will flood, not all caves, and you might have safe areas inside those caves. So you need um, really good safe operating procedures in place to know if there is a flood, um, what you can or can't do. Uh, you certainly should have a flow gauge at the entrance with a maximum flow that you would enter that cave in. And if it's likely to rise while, while the party is in that cave, they should not be entering. So really good systems in place to try and protect the students. You've, you've got to realise too, like there's potential for... There's very few places in the outdoors where a whole group can be killed. Um, if you're climbing a mountain, there might be a rockfall and one student could be hurt, injured, or, or even potentially killed. But um, caves um, or canyons are one of the only places where an entire group can be wiped out through flooding or flash flooding. So we have to take an extremely cautious approach. So would they be? Would caves be what the most dangerous places that you could take a group of young people? I think caving is, in generally speaking, is is not dangerous. So, in normal weather conditions, where there's very little chance of flooding, or in a cave system which has old fossil dry passages, we can get above the cave streamway. It can be a, a an experience which has a moderate to high sort of perceived risk, but actually um, low level of risk. Uh, it's when we enter caves where it's raining, where that risk really increases. Um, we, we just have to be extremely cautious on those days. Mm. Uh, can you explain to me a flow gauge? What does it look like? Yeah, a flow gauge is, is bolted onto the wall at the entrance or exit of a cave or the upstream entrance where the water flows in or where the, the water flows out. And as the water rises, um, it simply climbs up the numbers. So most operators, um, tourism operators operating cave trips will have a flow gauge, uh, at least one flow gauge, maybe several. And when it when it reaches a certain point, um, they'll likely stop operating or um, potentially um, change their ratios. So they might go from a ratio of one to 10 clients to one to five clients in high water um, or, or alter the trip to a shorter trip if there's multiple entrances. So the guide would be taking, would have that flow gauge on them? No, the flow gauge is, is bolted onto the cave wall, so it's there permanently. So many caves, so, such as Waitomo, would have two or three of these flow gauges bolted on. They're just, just a, kind of like a road marker, if you like, with 
numbers written on the side and as the water goes up you can you can measure it against that number to, to understand what conditions are going to be like. And have you ever been in a situation where you're guiding a group, Neil, and you've had to make a difficult decision to either carry on or to turn back? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been many incidents and accidents regarding caves flooding in New Zealand, so groups getting trapped, and there has actually been one previous death on a school camp where a, where a student was um, washed away down a streamway in Castle Hill in the central South Island. Neil's talking there about 17-year-old Vina Duke, who was swept away in Canterbury's cave stream in 1987. I've been in caves multiple times when they've flooded, but always um, been able to climb out um, into a, a safe area. And so if I'm operating there in those sort of conditions, I've always been thinking about the fact that it might flood and I, I might need to take my clients into, the, into, a, into a safe zone. But one, one, one incident that really stands out for me is I was going up a cave streamway and the, the water was slowly rising. It couldn't potentially hit the roof at that point. And we got to a point where it could potentially um, rise to the roof. There would be no safe area to go to. So we stopped, waited 10 minutes to see what was going to happen. Um, next time we looked, it had indeed hit the roof. And so you, you wouldn't have survived if you'd gone any further. And it was just experience that day that stopped me making a, a bad decision. We turned around and went back out of safe room. And it's the guide who makes that call, obviously. It's the guide that makes that call. But in a company with um, new or young guides, most of the responsibility lies with the company, per se. Um, and a company that employs qualified guides that have been operating for many years or outdoor instructors that have been operating for many years, the responsibility sits far more um, with the staff members. They can, they can make a lot more calls on their own. So in New Zealand, we have something called New Zealand Outdoor Instructors Association, Zoya. Uh, and so we, we have an entry-level qualification, a level one and a level two. Uh, and by the time you reach level two, you should be able to operate with um, far less guidance from above, per se. But do you think we will ever get to the point in New Zealand where we can go on these adventure activities and no one dies? There will always be inherent risk uh, in adventure activities, but we can get it to the point where accidents are extremely, um, extremely rare events. And, and I think, I hope that's where we're, where we're heading. So there's always a degree of inherent risk. But most of the accidents we've seen in the past in the outdoors and the, on professional commercial trips have been really needless. Um, they, they haven't been from inherent risks. They've been from making significant mistakes that, where they just shouldn't have happened. So human error, but but what would it take? Is it tougher rules and if, is it tougher penalties? I think it's, yep, tougher penalties. Um, I think perhaps the answer lies in, in stronger uh, regulation, so um, more comprehensive auditing. What is the penalty now if, you know, if there is a big accident? It's a good question. But in most cases, you know, they won't work in the industry again and it's, it's, it's going to potentially destroy their lives, having to, having to think about that every day. Okay. It, it, it gave me a lot and I worked as an outdoor instructor. So. Do you work now as, as a guide? I, I do casually. I mostly work as a photographer. Funnily enough, working tomorrow for the next two days in the outdoors, but occasionally um, outdoor instructing at a, at a tertiary level. But does it put you off, you know, a terrible accident like we've had this week? 
Oh, I, I think it would put anyone off. I think it makes it uh, less appealing to want to work in that industry. Mm. It's the last thing you want to have happen, working as a guide or instructor. You know, our, our job is to keep people safe, and it's just the, the worst-case scenario when something like that happens. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Neil Silverwood. Kakite anō.